0: This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. How does your upbringing shape the body of your work? What gets lost in translation? And what's it like being the daughter of the president and the first lady of Afghanistan? These are some of the questions that Mariam Ghani and I follow in this episode of Stories of Transformation. Mariam is an artist, filmmaker, writer, and educator. And through this combination of her work, she's on a mission to preserve the past, enlighten the present, and provide hope for the future. In this conversation we discuss Maryam's unique lived experience of being raised by exiles, how she discovered her passion for filmmaking and redirected her life to preserve and capture the things that are no longer with us. We also discuss the complexity of language, in ways both linguistic and interfamilial, and what it's like being the daughter of the current president of Afghanistan, and how public service can mean different things to different people working in different places. It was delightful to be in conversation with Maryam to learn about how she sees the world and how she understands her place in it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And as always, please share this conversation far and wide. So without further delay, I bring you Mariam Ghani. Mariam Ghani, welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm okay. How are you, Bakhtash?
0: I'm doing well. I'm really, really excited to be in conversation with you. And um, I'm curious to know what will surface. And I'd like to start this conversation, Mariam, by asking you, you know, in your own words, how would you define who you are?
1: I usually say I'm an artist, a writer, and a filmmaker, and also an educator. But mostly I say an artist, a writer, and a filmmaker.
0: Mm -hmm. And how did you find your work? How did you kind of discover that this was the craft for you? How did that all kind of uh, play out?
1: There's a long answer to that story and a short answer to that story. The short version is that When I was in college studying comparative literature, I had a roommate who was a filmmaker, and I kept wanting to do their homework instead of mine. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the short story. (laughs) And the longer answer to that question really has to do with where I was studying and what I was exposed to in college. So this was the 90s and I was studying comparative literature at NYU. And in the 90s, in comparative literature, anything could be a text. So (laughs) I really had a kind of amazing set of courses and teachers, and one of them was Janine Dalal. And I took a course with her that was called Women and War, Contemporary Arabic Literature and Film. And for this class, we had to watch Elias Suleiman's films, and Walid Ra'at's videos, and Jay Saloom's videos. And then we had to go and see an exhibition at the new museum, which was Mona Hatoum's first retrospective in the United States. And all of these things together really combined to show me that there was a language, a language of film and video, that could do something that I couldn't do just in writing and that there was work being made in this medium that was really exciting and really politically engaged and really politically engaged with questions that I was very urgently engaged with in my activism at the time. And it really spoke to me. And I mean, I would say specifically that Mona Hatoum (laughs) exhibition is probably the reason I became an artist, because I'd never before seen something in a museum that said to me, you could be in a museum. You could make something that would be in a museum. Because I'd never before seen something in a museum that was about the things that I cared about and made from the perspective of someone like me. So that was incredibly important to me.
0: Yeah, and what you're talking about is the power of representation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, Mariam, could you talk about the experiences that kind of shaped and you in your early childhood and your upbringing that kind of helped you to arrive at this point?
1: Well, I think that the most formative experience for me growing up was really the experience of being raised by exiles. There is a qualitative difference between an immigrant and an exile in the way that they approach their new life in the new place. And I think. The experience of being raised by exiles, for me, what that meant was that there was always a sense of estrangement from the place that we were and a sense of of longing directed towards the places we had left. There was a sense of always living in a kind of in-between space that, you know, we were never fully part of American culture, but we were also not fully part of the places that we were no longer in. It's that sense of, like... Intimate estrangement, I would say. The kind of exiles' position, the diasporic position from which I really make most of my work, and certainly from which I make the work that I make in Afghanistan. You know, I'm always very conscious of everything I don't know and everything I did not experience because I grew up in the diaspora being raised by exiles. And also, of everything that I do have access to, and I do understand, and am connected to affectively, because of course I'm part of this family that has such deep roots, and that did live through these experiences, many of them, right? And so there's an incredible well of knowledge that I that I can tap into, that is also mine, at the same time that this other experience is mine, right?
0: Yeah. And Mariam, growing up, what was it like to hear the stories of your parents and the things that kind of shaped and formed them, in particular, coming from these places of of conflict and loss? What was that like for you to kind of hear them? And, you know, what did that kind of move in you specifically?
1: Well, growing up, I really heard more of my mom's stories. And I really lived with those in a in a very intimate way. Like I was very, very familiar with my mom's stories growing up and also with my maternal grandmother's stories. And those were a very big part of my kind of, I think, formation or my, my understanding of myself also as part of that kind of maternal lineage. And that was the first film I ever made was actually about those stories and about how they're passed down and how they're translated as they're passed through these generations of women and how the civil war in Lebanon actually intervened to interrupt and and change those translations. I think with the stories from my father's family, they were always more difficult for him to tell because it took so, so much longer for us to be able to come back to Afghanistan. So, It was a point of more pain for him. And also, the experiences that the family had had in Afghanistan were also at that time much more painful. So, those were stories that I didn't actually get to dive into until later in life. And so, for me, they were less like a family inheritance in the sense of something that you are familiar with and have grown up with and is just kind of part of your everyday background and more something that I really examined as an adult as as creative material (laughs) because I already was an artist and a filmmaker at the time that I really started digging into these stories. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to explain the difference.
0: Mm -hmm. And how do you think your parents and the places in which they came from kind of informed your artwork, right? Like, what's interesting is that I I find that your artwork is about documenting things that don't really exist anymore. And so help me understand kind of how you think about how your parents' experience informed your craft specifically.
1: Well, I I was once told by a curator who I had asked, why do you want to work with me on this particular project? And he said, well... You're like the artist who makes work about things that aren't there, and I said that is a great description of my work, and I'm going to steal it um, <laughs> because I think that yeah. is actually what links a lot of my projects is that they are actually you know projects about things you can't see or touch, things that have been you know stolen or destroyed or dispersed. I am very interested in these questions of like what we don't have in this particular moment. What is missing? What has disappeared? What's lost? And what that tells us, you know, not only about the past, but also about the present and the future.
0: Mm -hmm. And then specifically, what's your relationship with your work as it pertains to Afghanistan?
1: With Afghanistan, I've made a more concerted and, and in-depth study of the history of Afghanistan and, and really of the context uh, in which these kind of more personal and intimate and familial stories unfolded. So I think when I look at our, our own family stories, I now kind of place them within these larger contexts and in relationship to you know, these larger movements of of Afghan history. And I haven't done that so much with Lebanon. They've remained for me more intimate stories for the most part.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, growing up in your childhood, were there ever conversations about going back? Was there hope to go back to Afghanistan or Lebanon at one point?
1: Well, we lived in New York until I was about five years old. And I think during that period, there was still some hope that they might go back. They did actually try for about a year during that period to go back to Lebanon and live there. But that didn't really work because that was really during the beginning of the civil war in Lebanon. And it was a very difficult time to to be there with a young child as also a, a mixed couple. And so they came back to the States and... Yeah, I think it was right around when I was five, and this is the early 80s. This is when they really started to lose hope of being able to go back anytime soon. And they decided that, you know, as I was entering the American school system, and this by this time we'd moved to Baltimore, they should begin letting us really assimilate into, into American culture. And this is when they stopped speaking to us in, in Dari and Arabic, and I, I've i kind of never forgiven them for that. but.
0: Oh, how interesting. And so you were five years old at this time, Mariam? Yeah. Yeah. So, So your mother tongue was Darian Arabic, and then it went from these languages of your parents to English almost overnight, it seems.
1: Well, they were keeping up all the languages. They were making a real effort to keep us multilingual up until that point, because I think they had this expectation that they would be able to go back within a few years after finishing their graduate studies. And then it started to become really clear that that was not the case. That was not what was going to happen. And instead, what they would have to do was actually apply for political asylum for the rest of the family, which became sort of the project of the next, like, 10 years. So at that point, they decided we should really let the kids kind of just flow into American society. And they stopped keeping up the other languages. My mother kept up French with me.
0: Hmm. Super interesting. So to what extent then would your parents speak Dari with each other, if at all?
1: They would speak Dari with each other when they wanted to keep secrets from the kids.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: It was the language of parental secrets in our house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you're not alone in that. So what's really interesting is when you talk to people about Uh, their relationship with language and their relationship with their parents as it pertains to their mother tongue. It's an interesting kind of space to occupy and kind of think about. So did Dari or Arabic ever come back in terms of it being revitalized in your family later on?
1: No, not in the household. I studied Arabic in college and I would speak it a little when we went to Lebanon to visit family there. And then my brother and I have both picked up Dari as much as we can. We've both been making an effort, of course, and have been to different degrees successful in learning Dari since 2001, when we have been coming back to Afghanistan. So that's been a project of the later years.
0: Now, Mariam, as you kind of think about your work and and the different spaces in which you're kind of doing your work, in particular filmmaking, How does language in these specific spaces inform your work differently?
1: Well, I think, you know, more monolingual environments are are different than multilingual ones, for sure. They have different texture and different rhythms. And specific languages also have different rhythms and different feel to them. So, you know, if you're, for example, editing interviews... That have been conducted in one language versus another, they actually are paced very differently. For example, in the project The Trespassers, which I did back in 2011, which was actually about translation in the uh, U.S. so-called Global War on Terror, I was having these declassified documents, which were being read on screen, I was having them simultaneously translated into Arabic and Dari. And... The Dari translations were so much shorter <laughs> than the Arabic translations <laughs> that, like, the pacing of these simultaneous translations was really actually quite complicated. <laughs> because, you know, Dari can be very efficient as a language. Its structure is so simple in a way. It's a very unfussy language. And Arabic is, is very beautiful, but it's also very complicated <laughs> It also makes Dari very difficult to subtitle, I have to say, because what you can say very economically in a few seconds in Dari, to subtitle that accurately in English, the subtitle would be much too long to actually read in the same amount of time that someone spoke that sentence in Dari. It's very, very hard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 So personally speaking, as somebody who also has, has translated and interpreted, I can completely empathize. It's just... It's really difficult sometimes, like really, really difficult to completely capture the same essence in a different language. And, and that's the complexity and that's the beauty about it, right? Now, Mariam, as it pertains to the body of your work, this craft now that you've called your own, what do you hope it achieves specifically?
1: Well, what I have been most interested in, I think throughout my career, has been looking at places, spaces, and moments where political and cultural structures take on some kind of visible form, or can be made to take on some kind of visible form. And so the work in many ways is really about finding ways to represent things that are not usually visible. And whether that's because they have actually disappeared, or because we don't normally look at them, or because They're not things we usually think about as being visible or representable. I think that's really what I've made my project over my career, really trying to find ways to represent things that we don't normally think about as representable, Not always an easy project, but it has been very rewarding.
0: So Mariam, I'd like to take a moment and get some insight and, and dig a little deep into what it's like to be you as the daughter of Ashraf Ghani and Rul Ghani, who are the president and the first lady of Afghanistan. What's it like being you when you know your, your father in particular is in conversation with individuals and groups that in some sense don't value your craft and the space in which you know, you kind of exist in the world.
1: Yeah, that is a a difficult question to talk about. My parents have always been interested in the notion of public service and brought us up to believe in public service as a public good. And I think we may have come to different understandings of what public service is and what it requires of us. Different ways of carrying out Public service through our work. And I don't think we have to necessarily agree on everything to remain a family. You know, if all of us required consensus with all of our family members to remain, you know, families, then you, no one would have families anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, just so we're on the same page, what you're saying is that the work that your parents do and the work that you do, in some sense, completely take a different shape in terms of the way you you want to serve others, right? So it's about the form in which it takes, the shape in which it takes.
1: Yeah, I think it it takes a different shape. It operates in different spheres. It requires different kinds of contracts, right? Politics is a pragmatic art. And what I do can also be pragmatic, but in different ways, right? So I think, all of us have to make compromises to enact what we want to enact in the world. And artists, no less than anyone else. But I think the scale, <laughs> the scale of them can be different. And the space in, in which we're required to operate, of course, is very different. You know, I think one of the things that for me was really difficult in the, in the art world was coming to understand. There's an old Jeremy Deller joke. The art world is a great place to meet retired arms dealers. I mean, it is actually quite literal. Like there are a lot of retired arms dealers in the art world. There is a lot of money in the art world, which comes from sources that are very unpleasant. (laughs) There are major collections and collectors whose funding comes from things that many artists are morally opposed to. I have certain bright lines. Everyone, I think, has certain bright lines they try not to cross. But I think inevitably things happen. Like the artist Tito Steyerl has a has an amazing lecture called "Is the Art World a Battlefield?" or "Is the Museum a Battlefield?" And the the sort of arc of that lecture concerns, you know, a work that she made about a childhood friend of hers who joins the Kurdish rebellion and is killed, and then going to the site where this friend of hers was killed and finding the, the bullets which had been manufactured in Germany and then going to the site of going to the headquarters of the, of the bullet manufacturers and finding that they had one of her photographs in the lobby.
0: Are you serious?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so this, this is what happened.
0: Wow. Wow
1: like there's an extent to which you can't control where an artwork circulates once it becomes an object, uh, a commodity, right? That's one part of this. And another part of it is that art is a luxury item in most places. And when you're dealing with luxury items, you're dealing with a certain class of people, and you're also dealing with one of the least transparent markets and so there are places where art is used to wash money. Art is used for, for money laundering. So it's like I cannot know that I have totally clean hands either, you know, as much as I've tried to, as much as I've been part of artist boycotts and efforts to, like, you know, make things better. And I've, I've put limits on where my work can be sold and to whom. And I, st- I still cannot guarantee anything. <laughs> so... You know, I I don't think I can cast stones at anybody, honestly.
0: Yeah, I think I understand. So Mariam, as an artist, how do you kind of see the art that's coming out of Afghanistan now? Like, what is it? What are you noticing? What are your observations? And like, what is it moving in you? And how do you kind of, how does it kind of land with you? I'm kind of curious to know what you think about that.
1: Well, I will say one of the most exciting things for me has been seeing the rise of this generation of female film directors and having spent so much time in the film archive and, you know, interviewing this kind of previous generation of Afghan directors who were all men, you know, and really did not make space for women to direct. There were women editors, there were, you know, women who did other kind of behind the scenes work, but there were never women directors in that generation. And so it's been so amazing to see that the strongest voices in film coming out of Afghanistan and making waves on the international scene are, are really all women. And I'm so happy about that.
0: Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So Mariam is somebody who kind of has done a lot of work in Afghanistan, who has access to a lot of what Afghanistan has to offer. And is somebody who's, been raised in the United States, what do you think the West is getting wrong or misunderstanding about Afghanistan specifically? Like, what's your what's your assessment?
1: I would say in in my experience of having made works about Afghanistan and presented them in various parts of the West, the West still knows almost nothing about Afghanistan. <laughs> Especially they know almost nothing about Afghan history. So I think that has been... The key thing that I have taken away from the past 20 years of making work about Afghanistan is that very, very, very few people in the West have ever taken the time and also have the access to to the resources to really learn about Afghan history. And if they have any sense of Afghan history, it almost never extends beyond 1991. So that's the furthest back anyone has ever looked in my experience. People don't go back further than that.
0: So Mariam, as we kind of come to a close here, how would you go about answering the question through your lived experience, through the artwork that you kind of create and you share? How would you go about answering the question, you know, what is your message for the world?
1: I think as an artist, I've always been really specifically looking to history and in two different ways. The first way has really been thinking about how we use history in the present and really trying to intervene in that, really trying to have some kind of effect on which histories are made available to the present, because I think that's very important. Which histories are actually considered important in the present moment has a huge impact on how we conduct ourselves in the present. The other thing I've tried to do as an artist is really think about how the present will be constructed for the future and what will be available to the future like as the history of now. So what will be preserved? And this is you know, what has gone into my kind of work with archives on preservation projects and with my work in constructing archives, like my work as Index of the Disappeared with Chitra Ganesh. So really thinking about what history will make of us and what will be available to history has been, I think, a big part of the, the larger sense in which I look at my own work.
0: Great. Now, before we close today, is there anything else you'd like to share?
1: Yes, I am really excited to announce that just as I am speaking to you today, My feature film, What We Left Unfinished, which premiered at the Berlinale in 2019, has been picked up for US theatrical distribution by Deck Analog, and it will be released. As of now, we think the US theatrical release will be on August 6th, so watch out for that. This is the film that I made about unfinished films from the communist era in Afghanistan. And it actually features interviews with several filmmakers who have died since I made that film. So, you know, it's really really a a record that preserves something (laughs) that we couldn't even do now. So I'm quite proud of this film, and I'm really excited that it will get this limited theatrical release.
0: No, congratulations. That's amazing. We'll make sure to share that. Thank you. As I kind of think about your work, I think in some sense, like a lot of your work is about this idea of not only interpretation, but also this idea of preservation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's informed by your lived experience and the stories in which, at least speaking from my own lived experience, it's like all we had was story for our parents to kind of share. There was nothing that they could show us Mm -hmm. except for me, you know, like a few photographs. And so the idea of preservation is really important for, for people that come from our backgrounds because much of our background and much of our lived experience is about the absence of something versus the presence of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I remember looking at films in the Afghan film archive for the first time and seeing Kabul in the 60s and 70s in these films was astonishing. You know, just to, to see what Afghanistan looked like before the, before the war is something very different than to hear about it. I remember showing my mother the film Talabgar. Abdul Khaled Khalil's film, which was part of a larger anthology film called uh, Rozgaran. And she said just the kind of scenes of daily life that were in Kabul in that film, which was shot in 1968. She said, that's exactly what I remember Kabul looking like when I was first married and came to live with your father's family. That's exactly what I remember it being like. So to preserve preserve these films and to make sure that they're available to the next generation also, I think is really important. And it's a tribute to the filmmakers who came before us. Uh, and it's also, it's part of our cultural heritage.
0: And to speak to your work that you do in terms of embetterment and service, it's this idea of knowing where we came from in some Sense gives us a, a more wholesome understanding of who we are in the world. And I think that makes people feel as though, they can be better because they're coming from a place of of knowing versus, versus not knowing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that film can do is present possible worlds, right? Eh, as well as actual worlds. And I think that is part of what Afghan film did during the 60s and 70s. Part of what it did was document what was actually there, but part of what it did was project a kind of cosmopolitanism, that only existed maybe for, for a very narrow slice uh, of Afghan society at the time. And so seeing, reprojecting this possible Afghanistan uh, into present-day Afghanistan, I think does have an effect and, and you know, it, it reinvokes this possibility uh, for the future.
0: I totally think that's true. Mariam Ghani, thank you for your time today and thank you for being the light in the darkness.
1: Thank you, Bakhtash. That's very nice of you.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.